morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, if you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 246. 2 Samuel 13, page 246. While you guys are flipping over to um, the passage, let me just open us up by reminding you of some of the words from Nathan the prophet uh, to David from last week. This is from chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. <clears throat> I, I, of all the things that David's been through, I've got to imagine that that was probably the most terrifying encounter that he's experienced. And that's saying a lot because we're talking about David, right? David, who faced Goliath as a teenager. David, who has fought countless battles, faced the wrath of Saul, uh, endured a civil war, united the kingdom together. Of all the things he experienced, I'd imagine that that confrontation from a prophet of God, from a good friend of his, about his sin, was probably the most terrifying thing that there was. For the next four weeks, uh, we're going to be studying the, the, the heart-wrenching reality of Nathan's words to David that the sword shall never depart from David's house. In some ways, that's already begun to pass. If you know the story at the end of chapter 12, uh, the child that is the result of the adulterous affair between David and Bathsheba dies. But it's here in chapter 13 where the full potency of Nathan's words begin. And there's a lot going on in chapter 13. Normally, I don't read the entire chapter, but I'm going to do that this morning. I encourage you, at the bottom of the bulletins, we usually put the chapter or the passage we'll look at the next week. I do encourage you to read ahead, but just in case you didn't, and because of the, the, the density of this text, I'm going to read the entire thing. Uh, you don't need to stand up, but let me just read it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 13, you should be there by now. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was laying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber, the, the bedchamber, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she had brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. 
She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for, this, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out from my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. Verse 23, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazar, and which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's son. And Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go. But he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's son go with them. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, said, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the, kings, all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahuhud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Well, if you're new to reading your Bible, what you just read, what I've just read to you, may come as a shock because it contains this kind of material. 
But the Bible never sees the world through rose-colored glasses, does it? In fact, the Bible sees the world as it really is in all of its brokenness. More importantly, though, the Bible provides us a vision of what the world can actually be as God works out his plan. And in part, that happens by we facing hard truths and realities about ourselves and the world we live in. In 2 Samuel 13, you see two vignettes, two distinct scenes, Amnon and Tamar, and then Amnon and Absalom. Now, in both of those vignettes, both those scenes, David the king, both directly and indirectly, is present. And so the author of this chapter wants us to see these events as connected to King David. Now, with all that's going on in this chapter, and there's quite a lot happening here, rape, murder, David's physical presence, but parental absence, how do we know, where do we zero in to figure out what it is this chapter is trying to tell us? I like to say, what is the center of gravity of that particular chapter? With all that's happening, how do we know why God put this chapter in his word? Why did God see fit to put such a hard chapter in the Bible? What are we to learn from this? After all, as we read through the chapter, there's a lot that can grab us. There's a lot that can arrest our attention and, and draw our attention to things that may not even be the reason why it exists in the Bible. In my reading and study this week, and even listening to some sermons on that, that there is the, the psychology of this chapter that can draw us in, right, after all. Amnon, so confused in his understanding of love and lust, and how he so clearly twisted reality of the situation to match his own wayward desires. Absalom, with his cold-hearted, murderous heart hidden by a veneer of cool aloofness. And then David... Blunted moral courage because of his past sins. So you can be drawn in by the psychology of it. You can even be drawn in by the irony of this passage. After all, these are the king's sons. These are the crown princes of the people of God doing this. Guilty of rape and murder, manipulation, deceit. How is that possible? So there's the irony of it. There's the psychology of it. And then there's even the spectacle of it. Of all this tragedy unraveling. It's kind of like driving on the 405 or the 5 freeway. We all complain about traffic and all that, but when we come across the accident, what's the first thing we do? We go, whoa, look at that. The spectacle of watching carnage draws us in. Sometimes we can't not look at what's happening. So with all these happening in this passage, the psychology, the irony, the spectacle of it, how do we know what the center of gravity is? Oftentimes when I'm reading the Old Testament and I'm wondering, why is this here? I find it's helpful to go back to ask the question, what's the author's point? Why is this chapter in here to begin with? And this particular chapter, it's kind of in a unit, isn't it, with chapters 11 and 12 that we've been studying. Remember in chapter 11, while the presenting issue was adultery, that really was just the presenting matter. The real point of the author was to teach that you cannot hide your sin. Not even the king can hide his sin. And chapter 12 answers, well, why can't we hide our sin? Chapter 12 answered that. Because your sin will find you out. And Tim gave some great examples of how sin, big or small, can be discovered. And I, just this past week, was, was looking online and read about a man in Peru using Google Maps and discovered his wife was cheating on him. She had no idea that as she was sitting there making out with her lover that the Google van would drive past. 
And then just a few months later, her husband would be looking up a location of a restaurant in the area. Your sin finds you out. So chapter 11 says you can't hide your sin from God because your sin will find you out. And chapter 13 gives the last piece of this puzzle. And sin brings disaster into our lives. You look at chapter 13, that's what it's communicating. It doesn't get worse than what we're seeing and reading about in this chapter as the wheels fall off of David's life and eventually the kingdom. So if sin brings disaster in our lives and what the author wants us to feel is a revulsion to it, to be repulsed by it, ultimately to hate it, what's the takeaway? Here it is. We've got to be disgusted by sin. We need to be repulsed by it. We actually need to hate sin. If you look at the chapter, there's not much else that this chapter is trying to communicate. In some sense, I could say, okay, that's the sermon. You're done. Do you get the point? But we, like others, we need more than just a, a propositional statement. We need to feel what's going on. And when you look at the chapter, all the details exist to make that point three-dimensional, to make this reality real to us, personal to us, heartbreaking to us. And as I've said, this is why and where reading the Old Testament, guys, you have to switch gears. Then you know, So much of us spend all our time in Paul's epistles or the New Testament. And you cannot read the Old Testament like the New Testament. Like it's just a, merely a theology book to underline, keyword, objectify, and study for mere intellectual benefit. Because if that's how you read this chapter, you will miss the point. We have to be gripped by the truth in our heart as much as our minds are filled with it. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is written that we would feel the emotion and the cost of sin. Not just analyze it coolly, check off our Bible reading plan, and move on. And that's why we stopped. We've broken it up. We could have we really put the next four chapters and collapsed them all into one message and moved on. Because you're going to find there's a repeating theme here. And if I can just be so bold, it's sin sucks. And it destroys and devastates. And yet, because we, we, we kind of know that one way, we don't know it here. And so rather than do all these four chapters in one, cha- in one sermon, I said, let's look at it week after week after week so we feel what the author wants us to feel. And if actually you just read the text carefully, you can see that's exactly what he's trying to do. Just look at what he says, some of these verses. She cried out, verse 12, Tamar cries out, No, my brother, do not violate me, depending on your translation. Some say, humiliate me, violate me, do this thing to me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this outrageous thing. A few verses later, Amnon hated her with great hatred. So great was his hatred. It was worse than the way he loved her. No, it's four times hate, hatred, hatred, hatred. And then Tamar's response, putting ashes on her head, the symbol of great deep mourning and grief. She tears her robe, crying. She runs out and she lives as a desolate woman. And then finally, almost the capstone of it, Kill him. All those words, humiliation, violation, hatred, selfishness, agony, crying, desolation, murder. 
This is not a chapter you just read and go, yeah, sin's pretty bad. This is a chapter where the author wants you to feel it in your bones because this is a mirror to us. That's what's going on in this chapter. And all of what we're seeing here in this chapter, keep in mind, is a fallout of David's sin. Now, as we read the chapter, it was obvious that David's not the main character in this particular chapter, but his legacy, his shadow, his presence is felt everywhere, isn't it? And none of it is in a good way. You notice the parallels. In chapter 11, David commits adultery. In chapter 13, his son Amnon commits rape. In chapter 11, David murders Uriah in a cowardly manner, having a third party take care of it. In chapter 13, Absalom murders Amnon in a cowardly manner, having a third party take care of it. In chapter 11, David sends Uriah to his grave. In chapter 13, David sends Tamar into Amnon's bedchamber in verse 7. And then in verse 27, David sends Amnon into Absalom's trap. In in verse 7, Tamar tears her robe in grief. In verse 31, David tears his garments in grief. Friends, the, the parallels and the tragic irony runs throughout the entire chapter. The writer wants us to see very clearly that the fallout and the carnage and all that is taking place here in the lives of these individuals can all be traced back to, da- to David. And David's ability to act or intervene completely stifled. Did you notice that? Look at verse uh, Verse 21, David gets angry, right, when he finds out about what Amnon did to Tamar, but he does nothing. And verse 23, two verses later, says, two years have passed, and David did nothing about what Amnon did to Tamar. Just as verse 38 says, three more years pass, and David does nothing about what Absalom did to Amnon. It's as if David... Watching this tragedy unfold, it's as if David knows he is guilty of the very same things that his sons are doing. These are just chips off the old block, and he has no way to speak into their lives. I mean, this isn't the point what I'm going to say now, but it, I mean, at the very least, this is one of those kind of chapters that say, look, a leader who's or a person whose private life is a mess, you forfeit any ability to lead with integrity. Is that exactly what happens to David? David, ruled by his guilt, because of that, he cannot speak to his son Amnon, who's ruled by his lust. And he can't speak to Absalom, who's ruled by his hatred. He loved these boys, we're sure of it. We see that in the text. But he forfeited any right to speak to them about love or purity or restraint because he abandoned all three in chapter 11. And the result, a violated daughter, two dead sons. Amnon here in chapter 13, and then Absalom several chapters later in chapter 18. Sin brings disaster, friends. All kinds of sin. It brings disaster into our lives. The writer wants the reader, you and I, to see this, to feel it, and be repulsed by it, and to hate it in all of its forms. How many times does God have to teach us this lesson? You think about it. In the very second chapter of the Bible, God makes the point that sin will bring disaster into your lives. Genesis chapter 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Sin, any sin, all sin, little sin, big sin, brings disaster. 
And that's a lesson that appears over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, in history, and in our own lives. 2 Samuel 13 is not meant to be read and we're disappointed in David, disgusted by Amnon and Absalom's behavior, or even our hearts going out to Tamar, although all those would be true and right reactions. This chapter is written so that it's about seeing sin, or as Galatians 5 says, the works of our flesh for what it is in its raw, brutal, naked wretchedness and wanting to run as far away from it as we possibly can. That's why it's here. That's why all the details are there. It's there to bring it alive, to make it seem like, yes, this is not just a story. This is reality. This how is how it happens. But now, if we just focus on the fallout or the result of the sin here, in this case, rape and murder and moral uh, impotency, but we don't think about the nature of sin, this chapter won't land on us the way it needs to. What do I mean by that? Um, like chapter 11 from a couple of weeks ago, I don't need to tell you that adultery is an evil that needs to be avoided, just like I don't have to tell you any of the actions here are evil and need to be avoided, right? Most positive, and you guys in this room are not in danger of these actions right now. I'm hedging because I know the human heart, right? But by and large, I haven't caught wind of murder going on in our church, right? Deceit, maybe manipulation, yeah, but so far, not murder yet. And so what can happen is you think, well, you know, adultery, that, that can happen. Rape, murder, that's probably not going to happen amongst us. We're, I don't think so. And so what you do is you tune out. You say, here's another passage of the Bible that probably doesn't have much to say to me. But it does. So, so what I want to do is say, ask the question, so how is it that we avoid sin's ability to bring people to these disastrous ends? And so here's the pivot point of the sermon. I'm going to shift from kind of the facts and the history of the events to what it means to us, so to speak. Before it became rape and murder, I think sin was at work in Amnon and Absalom in ways very similar to the way sin is at work in our hearts right now. Let me unpack that. Amnon, you see him first, had this way of convincing himself that his lust was love. And as verse 15 implies, he was able to reinterpret his reality so convincingly, not based on any of the facts, but as he wanted things to be. And in the end, the truth came out. Right? That, we, that was so obvious to us, but not to him, that his lust or his love was just lust. Here's my question. As we read from James chapter 1, are your desires so strong, friend, that you can bend and manipulate reality to fit your own perspective? In other words, can you somehow interpret or reinterpret all the facts of your situation to fit the narrative you want, even while others are warning you otherwise? Is your desire so strong that no matter what happens, you can reinterpret that to fit the narrative that you want to be true rather than what's actually happening around you? I think the honest answer is yes. In his seminal work uh, back in the 1950s, Paul Tillich wrote this book called The Courage to Be. I remember reading through this and thinking, being astounded at his insight. So Tillich made the observation 
that it's by far much easier for people to believe a deception about themselves if it's psychologically easier to cope with than face the harsh reality of truth. Let me give you an example. This is one from Tillich. He says, it's much easier to believe that the world is out to get you and that life is unfair than to accept the reality that you do not have the emotional maturity to navigate life's complex relationships or that you are lazy and you lack self-discipline. After all, he says, assigning oneself the role of the martyr is somewhat heroic and preferable than to seeing yourself as a loser. Well, that's very true. Another example is that he says, how people like to believe that others are cliquish and unfriendly rather than to admit they struggle with insecurity and couldn't bear being rejected if they put themselves out there. To believe others that are, people are stubborn and don't want to change, then to accept that you lack the courage or the grace to confront someone with a hard truth in a loving manner. Stop and think. I bet you probably can think of some people like that in your life. Hope you know that that's you too. I remember reading Tillich and was like, man, this guy's spot on. After being a pastor for nearly 30 years, I think he's exactly right. It's not a question of if we put on these psychological facades and roles. That, that's, that's not if we do. The only question is why and for how long and how often. And so Tillich says in his book, what people really need is the courage to be. And, and his, this is back in the 1950s, and so it's kind of prescient about the kind of culture we live in now. The courage to be real. The courage to be authentic. Those meanings have taken a whole different idea now, but he was saying people need the courage to be honest about who they are and what they are. Amnon convinced himself of something that wasn't true, and it had tragic consequences. It was easier to believe that he loved Tamar than to admit to himself that he was emotionally immature, needy, and lacked self-control. And once he had had her, once the deed was done, he realized he was still the same empty shell of a man. He hated her rather than his own brokenness. Are you telling yourself something that's not true this morning? Here's a more important question. How would you even know that you're lying to yourself? Right? Because the, by definition, self-deception means what? You don't see it. Are you telling yourself something that's not true? And more importantly, how would you know you're even lying to yourself? Friend, can I make a suggestion to you that one of God's reasons in giving us the local church is to help us to avoid the self-deception of Amnon and to have the courage to be? The writer of the, Hebrew, writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way. Take care, brothers. Okay, brothers, so we know he's writing to Christians Take care, lest there be in any of you, look at this, almost like a progression, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But, here's the antidote, exhort one another, how often? Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
This is why if you become a member of Christ Community Church and our church covenant, one of the promises we make to each other, this is promise number two, based on this, we will walk together in Christian love and care, faithfully watching over one another, encouraging and admonishing one another, and so display God's glory to the world. Friends, godly, accountable, gospel-centered relationships are the cure, are the way to have the courage to be. Amnon was happier living in a self-deception than embracing hard truths that had he done so, maybe he would have been a great king instead of an outrageous fool who was then murdered. What lies are you telling yourself and how do you know that you're telling yourself those things? What What about Absalom? Absalom's the other brother, so despised his father David for his failure that he was blinded to his own failure. It's amazing. He was so blinded by his anger towards his father and that, that, that he was that so angry at what his father did, he was blind to the fact that it justified him doing the same thing, killing someone he didn't have the right to do so to. You know... It's at this point, we'll see this in a couple more chapters, but it's at this point that uh, Absalom probably had the seed planted of his rebellion. Because if his father's not going to give justice, because his father brought no justice. And we even see that in the dialogue when he meets Tamar and he says to her, did your brother do this? And, and, and his, his words there may seem like he's saying, oh, Tamar, don't worry about it. it was, don't, don't worry about what happened. No, no, no. Absalom is smart. He says, my father's moral integrity has been compromised, what he did with Bathsheba. He's probably not going to do anything about this. And he was right, didn't he? Wasn't he? He probably thought, I am a more righteous man than my old man. How dare he do this very thing? I should be the king. And so right here, years before the, revo- the rebellion comes out, we see the seeds being planted. He hated his father for his father's lack of integrity and it blinded into his own lack of integrity. That's what sin does. Sin blinds, right? And who's the first person to lose their sight? You. Sin hardens. And who's the first person that goes rigid? You. That's the reality. And one of the practical reasons why sin can kind of catch us blindsided, no pun intended, or catch us flat-footed, is because most of us have the wrong definition of what sin is, Right? We define sin as behaviors, things like we're seeing here, rather than defining sin as a spiritual issue rather than a behavioral issue. What do I mean by that? Years ago, I was listening to a sermon by John Piper, and he was talking about the nature of sin, and then he defined sin in a way I had never heard before, but it made total sense. In answer to the question, what is sin, John Piper says this, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, cherished, and the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That, he says, is sin. 
But when we limit sin's definition, which we typically do to bad things we do, negative behaviors, we miss the vast majority of sin's power and influence in our lives. And because of that, it exercises an even greater influence than we even realize because it's operating in the background and we have no idea. So we honor our own glory. We admire our own greatness. We seek our truth. We esteem our wisdom. And while we would never say this publicly, because if we were to say it, we would sound super arrogant, what sin makes us actually think is, you are God. None of you would say that, right? Because as the words came out of your mouth, you'd be like, wow, I sound really arrogant, and my pride does not want me to seem as arrogant, so I won't actually say that. I'll just live that way. Because after all, it's my life. It's my time. It's my money. It's my desires, my agenda, my demands. Yeah, sounds like you got, you're God, not God. And we go so lights out to God, that's what sin does. Friends, if the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, then it follows that the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And that's why the gospel is so radically different than anything else that is out there. That's exactly what the gospel offers us. Friends, the way you can be truly repulsed by sin as we see it here in this passage and free from its devastating effect is only by having a changed heart. The only way you can actually see this and read this the way the writer wants you to read it and feel it the way he wants you to feel it is that your heart is changed and sensitive to what sin actually does. Not just the sin of others, but the sin in your own heart. So the question is, how do we have that changed heart? The Bible, theologians call it the the, the great rescue, the great exchange. Jesus' life for our life, our life for Jesus' life. Friend, do you want to avoid the self-deceit of Amnon? Do you want to avoid the self-righteous anger of Absalom? Do you want to avoid the moral impotency of David? What you do is you look to the cross. You look to the cross. You look to the cross because you know what the cross is? It is a judgment on all your foolishness, all your faithlessness, all your faking it, all of your insecurities, all of your immaturities, all of the wickedness in your heart, and it condemns you as guilty. That's what the cross does. When you look at the cross and you look at his word and you see his character, what you ought to see is a mirror looking back at you and the only thing you see is a loathsome deformity of what God intended. That's what you see when you see the cross. I'm not sure how many of you have done that. I know in a culture like ours, super easy to be a Christian, right? Well, super easy to be a Christian. Because what we say is, yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But do you really get it? That you are a loathsome wretch, a deformity of what God wants you to be. In your bones, do you feel it? I can show you a test message that if you really get that or not. When people come up and try and correct you or bring a sin to you and you justify, you blame shift, you dodge, you weave, you get defensive. You do that because you can't help, you, can't, you don't want to know that I'm not as righteous and good as and competent as I think I am. I'm better than these things. 
And friends, I know what I just said. Oh man, it, it's hard to hear, right? Especially because for a couple generations, we've lived in the, the self-esteem, participation trophy kind of culture. And right now, some of you are very triggered right now and you're using your therapeutic mantra. I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of love. I'm not listening. I'm worthy of love. I get that. I, I understand. But here's the thing. Stop the nonsense. It's not because it's not true, right? It's a, because without the second half of the gospel that I'm going to get to, it's meaningless. I'm worthy of love. Why? Well, because I lust in my heart. I'm selfish. I'm greedy. I put myself forward. But I'm worthy of love. No, you're not. Stop. But here's, here's the upside of what I'm talking about, right? You're like, I'm never coming back to this church again. Here, here's the upside. When you look at the cross and you get that, here it is. When you really get what the scripture says, you don't have to deceive yourself anymore. I mean, what is there to deceive yourself? You already know what you are. So you don't have to create psychological facades and convince yourself of a different reality because you've done the hard truth of looking yourself in the mirror of God's word and you've seen what's looking back. And so you don't have to hide in these facades. You actually can own your wretchedness. So that, that, that's how you get rid of the self-deceit of, of Amnon, right? How you get rid of the self-righteous anger of Absalom, same thing. You look at the cross. Because when you look at the cross, it is saying what I just did, but it's also proclaiming how deeply and truly God loves you. The length and the degree and depth that he would go to give, to sacrifice, so that you can be eternally righteous, beautiful, clean. That there's nothing he wouldn't do to make you an object of beauty and pristine majesty yourself. And when you get point number one, and you're understanding point number two, there is no room for anger and self-righteousness at others. You, you cannot, you just won't judge other people's sins worse than your own. It's replaced with joy and humble gratitude. Because you understand point number one. And you understand point number two. So that's how we get rid of our self-deceit. That's how we get rid of our self-righteousness. How do we get rid of our moral um, impotency? You look to the cross. And you see, not an impotent king like David, but an omnipotent king who is on the cross so that he can give his righteousness to everyone who knows they have none of their own. When you get that in your soul, that changes your heart. It changes your heart. And so when people come up to criticize you or, or bring up something you have done, you don't get defensive and judgmental in your own self-righteousness. You say, thanks, brother, sister. That must have been hard to confront me like that. But you know what? I need to hear that. Even though you're wrong, um, in, in that instance, even though you might be wrong in that instance, right? I'm, you don't say this, but that's what you're thinking. I've done that something, I've done that here before, and I've done that there, and I've done that there. And in God's mercy, you're the one calling me out. Thanks for that. It, it gets rid of all the defensiveness and the self-righteousness. And when you have to confront somebody else, you're not self-righteous and you want to let them have it because you're a better king than they are. You're brokenhearted and you say, hey man, I'm pleading with you. Don't go down this road. I know what that's like. I know what's at the end. 
Come with me as we look at the cross and realize the beauty of the gospel. That changes your heart. Friends, that's how any of us are rescued from the disaster of sin. By the love of the one who conquered it. That's the point of this chapter. Sin brings disaster. But Christ can save us from sin. Run from sin. Run to Christ. How will you do that this week? How will that, what will that look like for you this week? Running from your sin and running to Christ. Maybe it's realizing I have no way of knowing if I'm lying to myself. I need brothers and sisters who are willing to say hard things to me in love. I need brothers and sisters with the courage to confront me. I need the humility to be challenged. What will it look like for you to run from sin and to Christ? This is what the Bible simply calls repentance. Repentance and faith. Turning from sin, turning to Christ. Maybe for some of you it'll be the first time. Maybe for some of you it's the thousandth time. But that's the grace of the gospel. Whether you're the first time doing it or the 10,000th time. Second Samuel's written to warn us about the dangers of sin. Now, we have something they didn't at the time. We have the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, and we know how God handles the sin and gives us righteousness. It's in the cross. I was going to pray this morning. I was thinking, I'm going to have us pray, and then those who want to kind of repent, just look at me, but honestly, that really should be everybody, right? So instead of bowing our heads and having everybody's heads pop up like that and taking a lot of time, I'm just going to assume we're all there, that we all recognize sin sucks. And I'm sorry, that's, that's maybe not the most pulpit-appropriate terminology. That's one of what one of my elders told me this morning. That's what 2 Samuel 13 is about. So you can blame it on one of our elders. Sin sucks, but Christ saves. Would you pray with me? Lord, what I don't want is us to read this passage and we just go past it. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful privilege to be just confronted by sin in my own heart, in the ways I dodge, weave, shift, justify, rationalize, blame, shift, be defensive. Father, I pray that any one of us here would acknowledge that's what we do. That's what sin makes us do because we think we, we, we have to be righteous on our own. We haven't really believed our righteousness is not in ourselves, but from Christ and Christ alone. It's the very reason Christ came is because we cannot attain righteousness. I pray, Lord, we would live a life of joyful repentance this week, celebrating in the fact, not that we're sinners, but that we have a savior from our sin. And may that change our heart replacing self-deception and self-righteousness with joy and gratitude and boldness and humility. Lord, those are impossible to hold together apart from an understanding of the gospel. I pray you'd make it real in our hearts, real in our lives, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.